open your Bibles, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 40. And we're going to read uh, together verses 1 through 11. Isaiah chapter 40, 1 to 11. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. Let every valley be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. And let the rough ground become a plain and the rugged terrain a broad valley. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Well, I wish we had time tonight to consider all the significance of the verses we've just read. I think that of all the tremendous chapters that are in this book of Isaiah, that chapter 40, perhaps more than any other, highlights the awesome character of God in a way that is particularly near. In verses 1 and 2, you have the comfort of God preached to his people with the message of peace from war, pardon from iniquity, and payment for sin. You have redemption accomplished by the coming of the Lord. In verse 3, a voice is calling, and this is the voice we often associate with John the Baptist, but it's nothing less than the voice of the Lord. According to Luke chapter 3, you find there that the word of God came to John in the wilderness, and he cried out in accordance with this prophesy, with this a prophecy here, clear the way for the Lord. And we have this great picture of the highway smooth at the coming of God, the humble elevated, the proud made low, all humanity, as it were, brought to one common plane in the presence of God at the revelation of his glory in verse 5. Divine glory that is revealed to grass. 
you and me, to flowers that fade before the breath of the Lord and his everlasting word. Well, I'm going to do something that almost is unspeakable. I'm going to move past all those verses that we've just discussed there, hopefully without, without forgetting their significance. And I'd like to focus primarily on verses 9 through 11. The people of God have just received tremendous news. As we've discussed, peace, pardon, payment for sin, the revelation of the glory of God, God drawing near to his people. And then we have this, this command here in verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Tonight I'd like to talk about our fight against fear. Not the reverential awe that is described in Scripture or other places, but the worry, the anxiety, the irrational fear that I'm pretty sure has gripped each one of us at least from time to time, if not a more persistent uh, struggle. And I want to consider this fight in relation specifically to what God tells us about himself as linked here to this command, do not fear. And we'll see that this fight, and really the fight against sin in general, because fear of this kind is sin, always begins with a right view of the consideration of God, in particular here, the nearness of God. What do you have here? Here is your God. That's the very first thing. There's no use even going further unless we can get this one fundamental, vital thing into our heads, that God is near, that God has drawn near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. There's nothing else we're saying unless we can apprehend this truth in our mind unless we can really get it inside us that God is near well Isaiah goes on in some greater detail discussing the nearness of God in the chapter just over in Isaiah 41 uh, verses 17 through 20 41 17 through 20 the afflicted and poor are seeking water but there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst. You have poor, afflicted, thirsty, needy people. They can't even find water. And you and I are 60% water, so if you don't have water, you don't have anything. They are in trouble. They're completely destitute. And how does the Lord respond? I, the Lord, will answer them myself. We see here that God answers poor, needy people with himself, with his own presence. And how does he do that? Well, let's read on. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I will put 
The cedar in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I'll place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress. You have here life springing up from the dead. And the full significance here is not talking about just waters opening up. We're talking about the outpouring of the Spirit of God upon poor, needy, afflicted people. The Spirit of God that gives life. Well, why does he do it? Why does God show himself in this way? Why does God make himself so near? Verse 20. And it's a very, very emphatic verse. That they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well. That the hand of the Lord has done this. And the Holy One of Israel has created it. God wants you to see, and not only to see, but he wants you to comprehend, to recognize. He wants you to meditate on the full significance of all that he has done for you in Jesus Christ. And all that he continues to do for you through his spirit. God delights to show himself. What does it say in 1 John 5? And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him. God delights to show himself to his people. So that's the first thing we must understand in our fight against fear, this worry that's all around us in the world, is that, number one, God is near. Let's read on here back in Isaiah 40, we left off at the bottom of verse 9. Here is your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. The cynic would say, well, okay, God is near, so what? You're quite near to your chair tonight, and it's not doing much for you in terms of your fight against fear, because your chair is inanimate. It can't respond to any of your problems, any of your concerns. Well, God is not impotent. God is not static. God is, number two, able. God is not only near, but God is able. Behold, the Lord God will come, and he has come in Jesus Christ, with might, with his arm ruling for him. And the first thing we see here as evidence of that, most fundamentally, of course, is the power of God clearly revealed in creation. And Isaiah goes into great detail outlining that in verses 12 through 17 of this same chapter. We don't have time to go through it in great detail, but as an overview, in verse 12 we see that God is the one who measures out the waters in the hollow of his hand. He measures out the dust of the earth. Verse 13, without consulting anyone, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him, God has never been, nor will he ever be, dependent upon any being outside of himself. He is completely self-sufficient for all things. It goes on to describe how the nations are like a drop from a bucket in his sight and that the islands are like fine dust. In verse 17 it says, All the nations are as nothing before him. Now this doesn't mean that God doesn't care. We'll get to that. 
because God does care. But in relation to the magnitude of the power of God, we are nothing. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless or void, emptiness. There's nothing there outside of God and his awesome power. We go on to read that God is not like some mute idol, and the world's full of mute idols. Mute money, mute power, mute possessions, on and on it goes. Mute passions. God is not a mute idol. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsman plates it, with gold and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. There's nothing more embarrassing than an idol that falls over. But that's exactly what men do. They worship tottering idols that can't do anything. They can't even support their own existence they're, not, they're blind to the fact that the eternal God of glory was the one that created the very elements that they're using to erect these mute idols themselves. God's not a mute idol. In verse 23 of Isaiah 40, It is God who reduces rulers to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth meaningless, void, empty, nothing. They're nothing in his sight. Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. And the only answer that can be given is for us to again go back to creation and to see his awesome power stamped around us. In verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. God is not only near, God is able Mary understood this significance when the angel visited her and told her that the Messiah was to grow in her womb. And she cried out in Luke chapter 1 in the Magnificat, God has done mighty deeds with his arm. Behold, the Lord God will come with might with his arm ruling for him. You see the mighty arm of God clearly displayed by the incarnation of the Son of God. That is the absolute climax. Of all the creative power of God. That an eternal God without body, without shape, without passions. Would come restricted in the form of a human being. That is the greatest demonstration of the creative work of God. God is able. Well, we still have one problem. And that the hard heart would bring up 
in terms of the justice of God. You see, if God is near you and God is able, but God is not just, then you and I have no hope against fear. We have, we have everything to fear because we have a ruthless, omnipotent being who is drawing near to us. But brethren, God is not only near, God is not only able, but God is just. And that's what we find here again back uh, in Isaiah 40 verse 10. Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Well, you know, I, um, Isaiah writes here of, of Israel that did not particularly feel that God was just at the time. And in Isaiah 40, verse 27, we see here that they're, they're stating, My way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of God. They felt that the everlasting, eternal, self-sufficient God had become lethargic on their case, that he'd overlooked their issue. They didn't understand that God is zealous for justice. And we read on, verse 28, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not get tired. They'll walk and not become weary. Coastlands, listen to me in silence, and let the peoples gain new strength. We have here the demonstration of the justice of God in the strength that God gives to his people. In verse 29, he gives strength to the weary. Verse 30, yet those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. Chapter 41, verse 1, and let the peoples gain new strength. Then going into chapter 41, further we have what amount to a series of questions regarding the execution of God's justice. And the questions, in essence, are who calls the nations together for justice? Who delivers up the nations and subdues kings? Who makes them like dust with his sword? Who pursues them? And the answer is given in verse 4. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last. I am he. God loves Justice. He is zealous with a red-hot zeal for justice that we cannot apprehend in this life. This theme is, is throughout the book of Isaiah. And we don't have time to go into it all, but in Isaiah chapter 1, we have the command, learn to do good, seek justice. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 23, we see that the Lord condemns injustice. Woe to those who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of those who are in right. 
In Isaiah 59, uh, verses 15 and 16, we see how God longs for justice. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. And of course, that's talking about Jesus Christ. The arm of, the, of God extended to us in Jesus Christ, bringing salvation and ultimate justice in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 9, you have the very familiar verses regarding Jesus Christ, for a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. And there's a description of his government, of his throne. And uh, in verse 7, we see that he comes to establish a throne and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Justice and righteousness are inseparable. It's doing what is right. And they are the foundation of the kingdom of God. Um, There are many other passages. Isaiah chapter 28, verse 17, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. In Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold. And again, this is clearly talking about Jesus Christ, if you look at the context there. My chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. The justice of God is a clear fact. It's not a debatable issue. God is a just God. Isaiah 61.8, For I, the Lord, love justice. And that, I would encourage you to look into the uh, context there of Isaiah 61.8 on your own there, because that is tremendous. The context there is the Lord bringing joy to his people in Jesus Christ. And the proclamation in the midst of that is that God loves justice. Part of justice extended to us in Jesus Christ is joy. It's tremendous, but it's true. Well, we've discussed how God is near, how God is able, how God is just. And really, these are enough, brethren. These are enough in our fight against fear and anxiety and worry as we realize that if we are in Jesus Christ, all things work for his glory. But brethren, it goes further. God doesn't have to give us this. But it's here in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. What do we see there? He's not only near. He's not only able. He's not only just. But he actually cares about you. There's no use trying to intellectualize it. It's just that. God cares about you. And this, surprisingly, can be the most difficult thing to beat into our heads. But here it is. Verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. 
He will gently lead the nursing ewes. He's a gentle God. Amazing. But it's true. Well, this also, this idea of God's care for his people is, uh, is fleshed out in Isaiah uh, 41, starting at verse 10, kind of coming full circle in this whole idea of why it's ridiculous for us to be given over to fear because of the great news of the nearness of this tremendous God. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, the same hand that created the world, will uphold you. Skipping to verse 13. For I am the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not fear, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. It's always brought back to this picture of redemption in Jesus Christ. Part of our difficulty is that we expect God to do something as though he hasn't done everything for us already. It's done. It's finished. He has given you all the help that can be given in Jesus Christ. It's yours. There's no reason to be subject to fear and anxiety. There's no reason to look around you to anyone else except to the all-sufficient God who has done everything for you already. And that's what these verses tell us. God's love for us is always coupled with this, this great assurance. Well, we've considered our fight against fear uh, in a relatively positive sense, as we uh, focus on the character of God, I think it's worthwhile to briefly uh, consider our battle against fear in a negative sense as well, by really addressing the subject of fear itself. What is fear, this irrational concern? And to do that, you don't have to turn with me, but really we'd have to go back to Leviticus chapter 26, which talks about various judgments for disobedience. Leviticus 26, and in verse 1, the command is given, you shall not make for yourselves idols, for I am the Lord your God. Our God is is a gentle God, but he is also a jealous God, jealous for his own glory and righteousness, and he demands wholehearted sacrifice. And as we read on uh, in Leviticus 26, you see various judgments given for those who turn away from the Lord. You have sickness, you have famine, you have futility given to people in their labor, you have failure in battle, and you have irrational 
fear, which really amounts to nothing more than insanity. That's what irrational fear is. It is insanity. It is a failure to consider the reality of your present state. Leviticus 26.16, I will, the Lord is speaking, Leviticus 26.16, I will appoint over you a sudden terror. And reading on to the next verse, I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies and those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. That is insanity, to flee when no one is pursuing you. God is giving them over to this fear as an outcome of judgment. If you skip over to verse 36 in Leviticus chapter 26, As for those of you who may be left, I will also bring weakness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies, and the sound of a driven leaf will chase them. And even when no one is pursuing, they will flee as though from the sword, and they will fall. Um, another instance of this fear given as part of judgment is back in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 30. And the context here is Isaiah seeking safety in Egypt, which was the power horse of the world at that time. In essence, they were looking to the world for safety, for power, for provision, for comfort, rather than trusting in the Lord. They were rebellious. They had rejected his word. And um, I'm going to read starting at verse 15 in Isaiah chapter 30. For thus the, the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. The Lord is offering them everything, salvation and strength, if only they would turn from their sin and trust in him. I want you to give up, and I will save you. But they weren't willing. And you said, no, for we'll flee on horses. We have our own power that we're trusting in. The Lord says, therefore you will flee. They say, and we'll ride on swift horses. Our horses aren't just any horses, they're swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you will be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man. Brethren, that doesn't just happen. That doesn't just happen. A thousand men don't run away from one man in any battle. These men are being given over to judgment that is expressed in irrational fear. You will flee at the threat of five until you're left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill until you're nothing. You're completely destroyed. Brethren, we are not subject to this fear. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. 
and the one who fears is not perfected in love. If you're in Jesus Christ, you're not subject to punishment. There's no condemnation. Fear cannot touch you. Romans 8.15, we've not received a spirit of slavery again to fear, but of adoption as sons, by which you cry out, Abba, Father. I'm convinced that this is a tremendous way in which our adversary seeks to tear us down by trying to ensnare us with this idea that we have to be given over to this irrational fear just like everyone else is in the world around us. Well, the world is going to end. What's going on in Gaza Strip? What's going on with the economy? Who's going to be the next president? We're not subject to fear, brethren. I love this, Luke twelve seven. Why shouldn't we fear? Well, we've meditated on some pretty good reasons. But I love this, Luke twelve seven. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. This is amazing. God doesn't cite his power. He doesn't cite all that he's done for you and how ungrateful you're being. He looks at you. He comes to you in Jesus Christ. And he says, I love you. You have value. That's why you shouldn't be afraid. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Well, this is our fourfold fight against fear. The nearness of God, the ability of God, the justice of God, and the care of God for his people. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely, I will help you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we've said nothing new tonight. But we praise your name that these great treasures have been given to us by your Spirit. And we beg then, Lord God, that we would go forward this week not with a spirit of timidity, but with all the holy, righteous zeal for godliness that is ours in Jesus Christ to conquer sin and to shine as lights in the world. Amen.